The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to ask the question, what's the big idea? And uh, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a gentleman named Zbigniew Brzezinski, and he wrote many books. He was a prolific author, and he was also very well intricated into the power structure of this world in many ways. And we're primarily tonight going to be looking at a book he wrote back in 1970. That's right, 52 years ago. The name of the book is Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. That's right, he wrote a book about the Technotronic Era 52 years ago in 1970, and we're going to uh, break that down a little bit here and see some of the things that he wrote about that came true. But as a, uh, just a review for people, in case you're not familiar with who this guy was, uh, because he passed away in 2017, uh, his name was Zubignu Brzezinski, and that's a mouthful for some people. Um, and uh, let's, let's do a little breakdown first of exactly who he was and what kind of influence he had in this place. Zbigniew Kazimierz Brzezinski was an American, a Polish-American diplomat and political scientist. He served as a counselor to President Lyndon B. Johnson from 1966 to 1968 and was President Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor from 1977 to 1981. As a scholar, Brzezinski belonged to the Realist School of International Relations, standing in the ge geopolitical tradition of Halford Mackinder and Nicholas J. Spikeman. With, while elements of liberal idealism have also been identified in his outlook, Brzezinski was the primary organizer of the Trilateral Commission, ladies and gentlemen. The Trilateral Commission. The primary founder of the Trilateral Commission. This guy was one of the major social engineers and influencers in this world as far as policy setting uh, for different uh, governance types organizations. Uh, and he also worked, uh, you know, uh, covertly with intelligence agencies as well. Uh, but uh, let's continue on here just to break down a little bit more about who this gentleman was. Major foreign policy events during his time in office included the normalization of relations with the People's Republic of China and the severing of the ties with the Republic of China on Taiwan. The signing of the Second Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty with the Soviet Union. Uh, just for those of you who don't know, that's you know the, the whole nuclear weapons thing, isn't it? The uh, nuclear weapons proliferation thing. The brokering of the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel, the overthrow of the U.S.-friendly Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and the start of the Iranian Revolution, the United States' encouragement of dissidents in Eastern Europe, and championing, championing, I can't speak, championing of human rights in order to undermine the influence of the Soviet Union, supporting the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet-backed Democratic Republic of Afghanistan and ultimately Soviet occupation troops during the Soviet-Afghan War. And I'm going to pause for a second there. Mujahideen. Who are the Mujahideen? Well, these were the forerunners of what you would call Al-Qaeda, ISIS, all of these different groups. Same thing. This was all a big uh, intelligence agency uh, uh, construct of sorts. And this guy worked directly with that, and uh, he uh, actually armed and trained Osama bin Laden and some other people. 
gave them weapons, trained them, gave them tours of military bases, and uh, actually uh, uh, Osama bin Laden actually had a tour of the White House at one point. Most people don't know this. Osama bin Laden, before he became the big bad boogeyman of the world back in 2001, he was a, a CIA asset named Tim Osman. And he trained uh, with uh, many of these different uh, types of forces and things like that. He was trained by U.S. military operations, special forces, intelligence forces. And Zbigniew Brzezinski had a hand in all of that. Uh, so that's that was ostensibly uh, to undermine the Soviet Union in the Soviet-Afghan War. Okay, uh, So that's the kind of history behind this guy, some of the things he was involved with. Uh, just to give people uh, an idea of who he was. Uh, but let's let's read on and see, because he was involved in a whole lot more. And he actually served as a uh, an advisor in the Obama administration, too, before his passing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he passed away in 2017. Uh, he served in the, the Obama White House under some capacity as an advisor, a, uh, some type of a, a national advisor for the Obama administration as well. Uh, let's see, what else did he do here? Let's read on. Um, he was involved in the signing of the Torrijos-Carter Treaties, relinquishing the U.S. control of the Panama Canal after 1999. Brzezinski's personal views have been described as progressive, international, political, liberal, and strong anti-communist. I'm going to pause for a second there. Uh, I'm sorry, liberal, progressive, international, that and anti-communist do not go together, folks. Sorry. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. But that's what they're claiming here. So he says he's, it says he was for human rights organizations and for, quote, cultivating a strong West, end quote. Uh, he has been praised for his ability to see the big picture. Uh, critics described him as hawkish or foreign policy hardliner on some issues, such as the Poland-Russia relations. Brzezinski served as the Robert E. Osgood Professor of American Foreign Policy at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, a scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a member of various boards and councils. He appeared frequently as an expert on the PBS program The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, ABC News' This Week with Christine Amanpour, and on MSNBC's Morning Joe, where his daughter, Mika Brzezinski, is co-anchor. He was a supporter of the Prague process. His eldest son, Ian, is a foreign policy expert, and his youngest son, Mark, is the current United States ambassador to Poland, and previously served as the United States ambassador to Sweden from 2011 to 2015. Well, that's some pretty interesting stuff, huh? His family's well hooked up now. Do you see how it's these same families and stuff that always wind up uh, in these positions of power all the time? Do you, do you understand how, how that happens? Let's read a little bit more about his academic uh, prowess here, uh, where he spent... Um, you know, much of his time in academia here in academic circles, uh, because that, that'll be pretty telling, too. And then we'll get right on with the, the reading, just to give you an overview of who this guy was, uh, the kinds of uh, people that he associated with, and uh, many of the things that he uh, was involved with. 
After attending Loyola College in Montreal, Brzezinski entered McGill University in 1945 to obtain both his Bachelor and Master of Arts degrees, received in 1949 and 1950, respectively. And I'm going to pause for a second. Loyola College, folks, there it is. There's the Jesuit connection. Anyway, but we'll, we won't, uh, you know, focus on that too much right now. But uh, let's get back to it. His master's thesis focused on the various nationalities within the Soviet Union. Brzezinski's plan for pursuing further studies in the United Kingdom in preparation for a diplomatic career in Canada fell through, principally because he was ruled ineligible for a scholarship he had won that was only open to British subjects. Brzezinski then attended Harvard University to work on a doctorate with Merle Feinsod, focusing on the Soviet Union and the relationship between the October Revolution, Vladimir Lenin's state, and the actions of Joseph Stalin. He received his Ph.D. in 1953. The same year, he traveled to Munich and met Jean Nowak Jeziorensky, head of the Polish desk of Radio Free Europe. He later collaborated with Carl J. Friedrich to develop the concept of totalitarianism as a way to more accurately and powerfully characterize and criticize the Soviets in 1956. Brzezinski was on the faculty of Harvard University from 53 to 1960 and of Columbia University from 1960 to 1972, where he headed the Institute on Communist Affairs. He was Senior Research Professor of International Relations at the Paul H. Nitz School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. So, I think we could just leave it there, um, just to kind of see who this guy was. He worked very closely with guys like Henry Kissinger and others who were influential in many ways. He worked with presidential administrations. He worked within, uh, you know, different aspects of foreign affairs. Um, a known member of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations and uh, one of the original co-founders and primary co-founders of the Trilateral Commission. And uh, we'll be primarily looking at a book he wrote in 1970 called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era because he really laid the foundation for what was going to be coming and what we are actually looking at happening in real time today before our eyes. So let's get into that. I just wanted to give you a little bit of an educational background as to who Brzezinski was so that you know this is a serious person who knows what they're talking about. They've uh, actually been one of the people that has written uh, the policies on what is to come. Okay, This is one of the guys that manufactures and crafts the ideas and the plans for the future, right? So uh, when you understand that, you could see how the things he wrote, well, of course, they're going to come to fruition because this is a, a, a blueprint of sorts, right? So we're going to read <coughs> just a small portion of the book here, and we'll, uh, you know, give some commentary like usual. So uh, we're going to go to a section in here of the book, and this is called The Onset of the Technotronic Age. The impact of science and technology on man and his society, especially in the more advanced countries of the world, is becoming the major source of contemporary change. 
Recent years have seen a proliferation of exciting and challenging literature on the future. In the United States, in Western Europe, and to a lesser degree in Japan and in the Soviet Union, a number of systematic scholarly efforts have been made to project, predict, and grasp what the future holds for us. The transformation that is now taking place, especially in America, is already creating a society increasingly unlike its industrial predecessor. The post-industrial society is becoming a technotronic society, a society that is shaped culturally, psychologically, socially, and economically by the impact of technology and electronics, particularly in the area of computers and communications. The industrial process is no longer the principal determinant of social change, altering the mores, the social structure, and the values of society. In the industrial society, technical knowledge was applied primarily to one specific end, the acceleration and improvement of production techniques. Social consequences were a later byproduct of this paramount concern. In the technotronic society, scientific and technical knowledge, in addition to enhancing production capabilities, quickly spills over to affect almost all aspects of life directly. Accordingly, both the growing capacity for the instant calculation of the most complex interactions and the increasing availability of biochemical means of human control augment the potential scope of consciously chosen direction and thereby also the pressures to direct, to choose, and to change. And I'm going to pause for a minute, folks. Did you catch a little bit of that in there? First of all, he's talking about... Uh, what is going on here, how we're going into what they would call the post-industrial society, or what Klaus Schwab refers to as the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the 4IR. This is what he's referring to when he's talking about the technotronic society, right? The technotronic era. So, uh, he was laying this out way back in 1970, folks. All the stuff Schwab's talking about today... It's the same thing. It's the same playbook, right? The, these guys were in the same circles. Let's put it that way. Uh, I'm sure at one point Brzezinski and Klaus Schwab uh, have had a conversation at the very least. I'm sure of it. They had to have. Uh, but anyway, you can see here by what he's saying um, that uh, part of this technotronic era or fourth industrial revolution has to do with... Uh, the means of controlling humans, right? Let's read that last sentence here again so that you could further grasp the idea. It says, accordingly, both the growing capacity for instant calculation of the most complex interactions and the increasing availability of biochemical means of human control augment the potential scope of consciously chosen direction and thereby also the pressures to direct, to choose, and to change. So he's saying, uh, hey, you know, that's not off the table here, controlling human beings through biochemical means or some other means, right? But controlling people's behaviors, it's all about that. Uh, you know, the fourth industrial revolution or this technotronic era, it's all about a fundamental change of how human beings act, right? How we relate to one another, uh, the ways in which we behave, the things that we do, the social norms, right? It's all about the uh, the collective, you see. And, and we'll get a little more into that. Let's read on here. 
Reliance on these new techniques of calculation and communication enhances the social importance of human intelligence and the immediate relevance of learning. The need to integrate social change is heightened by the increased ability to decipher the patterns of change. This, in turn, increases the significance of basic assumptions concern, concerning the nature of man and uh, the desirability of one or another form of social organization. Science thereby intensifies rather than diminishes the relevance of values, but it demands that they be cast in terms that go beyond the more crude ideologies of the industrial age. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. So he's talking about there's a need for social change here, right? That's exactly what he's saying. There's an importance here. Uh, because of uh, the social importance of human intelligence. See, they're, they're shifting focus from uh, um, a knowledge base or a technological type base or a skill base to social type systems. See, they're more concerned about the social aspects of this because they don't want to lose control, right? They are unsure how this will pan out um, without some kind of a control mechanism in place to keep people in uh, in line so to say so that that's the bottom line here uh, but let's continue on new social patterns for norbert wiener the locus of an earlier industrial revolution before the main industrial revolution is to be found in the 15th century research pertaining to navigation the nautical compass as well as in the development of gunpowder and printing Today, the functional equivalent of navigation is the thrust into space, which requires a rapid computing capacity beyond the means of the human brain. The equivalent of gunpowder is modern nuclear physics, and that of printing is television and long-range instant communications. The consequence of this new technotronic revolution is the progressive emergence of a society that increasingly differs from the industrial one in a variety of economic, political, and social aspects. And then it says here the following examples may be briefly cited to summarize some of the contrast. But we're going to pause for a second there and go back over this. Okay, Who's Norbert Wiener? Has anybody ever heard of Norbert Wiener? Probably not. Not too many people know that name uh, outside of uh, anybody who's actually researched this stuff. Norbert Wiener is the guy that coined the term cybernetics. This is a very important thing, okay, because cybernetics methodologies are used by all of these people in positions of power to control things, right? The term cybernetics, for those that don't know, it goes beyond just robotics and, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and all these machine-type ideas that uh, are inherent in the word now. Cybernetics comes from a Greek word, kybernetes, which means steersman or pilot. What it is, is it's the science of whole systems control. It's the way that they uh, identify different means, effective means, of controlling entire systems. So it's the study of systems control. That's what cybernetics is, and they apply cybernetics principles to everything. You could apply this to any type of a system that there is. Everything right down from the human body and biology to machines to economies. You could use cybernetics principles to steer the way that events go within that system. 
And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, so when he's referring to Norbert Wiener, this was the the godfather of cybernetics, right? The the uh, one of the major founders of the cybernetics methodologies. So that did not escape the big news. Brzezinski's uh, view on things. He understood the cybernetics methodology and its importance. Uh, so he's pointing that out here, and especially as it pertains to what we now call the fourth industrial revolution, what he called the technotronic era. Uh, it's it's synonymous. It's the same thing. It's the era we're stepping into. We are indeed between two ages right now, as he said. Uh, we're kind of in a post-industrial type state where we're stepping into this new fourth industrial revolution and it's all about social change folks and uh, he's written about it here and let's see um, he says here about uh, how uh, the consequence of this new technotronic revolution is the progressive emergence of a society that increasingly differs from the industrial one in a variety of economic political and social aspects the following examples may be briefly cited to summarize some of these contrasts Number one, in an industrial society, the mode of production shifts from agriculture to industry, with the use of human and animal muscle supplanted by machine operation. In the technotronic society, industrial employment yields to services, with automation and cybernetics replacing the operation of machines by individuals. And I'm going to pause there, folks. You catch that? There he is, cybernetics. He actually uses the word right in his own uh, writings here. And he's talking about uh, how the industrial sector has succumbed to the service sector here in the Western world, right? And this is part of the plan. Why do you think the U.S. has shifted to a service economy? Uh, that's, that's the bottom line. We used to be a, a heavily industrialized nation uh, where we produced many goods and services here. We produced many things uh, we had factories. Now it's all about services. It's all service industry based. This is the plan because this is how they're going to step it up into the technotronic era or into the fourth industrial revolution. See, it's more of a social change than anything else, right? It's restructuring how society works and operates, whereas uh, the early part of the industrial revolution was primarily focused on shifting uh, where people lived to be closer to the larger cities because that's where many of the factories were. So that's where the jobs were and that's where the production went on. So it was the production of goods was the primary goal uh, during that time and the, the understanding of mechanical processes, these kind of things. Uh, now we've shifted once again. So now it's about shifting social energies more so than mechanical energies. And that's what he's pointing out here. And they're doing this through cybernetics methodologies, as I had pointed out earlier. Let's read on. Number two. Problems of employment and unemployment. To say nothing of the prior urbanization of the post-rural labor force, dominate the relationship between employers, labor, and the market in the industrial society. And the assurance of minimum welfare to the new industrial masses is a source of major concern. In the emerging new society, questions relating to the obsolescence of skills, security, vacations, leisure, and profit-sharing dominate the relationship, and the psychic well-being of millions of relatively secure but potentially aimless lower middle-class blue-collar workers becomes a growing problem. Gonna pause there. What have we seen happen in the past two years, folks? Well, the labor force has been decimated, hasn't it? 
and, and people have had more free time on their hands, and some of them seem kind of aimless, don't they? Hmm? Uh, th that's exactly the kind of thing he's pointing out. And they talk about obsolescence of skills, right? And all of these different factors. Well, one of the major things that they talk about, uh, you know, in different uh, uh, places, think tank groups and stuff like that, especially associated through the World Economic Forum, is about what they call reskilling people, right? Uh, Reteaching people new skills because they their old skills are obsolete they're not needed anymore the skills you need would relate directly to technology and uh, computers and things like that so they're talking about offering people more diverse type training in those regards and uh, giving them new skills like re it's, it's retraining it's a massive retraining of an entire generation of people uh, and actually multiple generations of people it's it's retooling the way all of our economic uh, supply chains and stuff work uh, the way we've done business, right? They, they've they changed around the way we do everything the past two years, and now it's it's mostly remote. Everything's done remotely, isn't it? For the most part. They've really kind of shifted the, the system more to that. Uh, but that does create more logistical problems and supply chain problems and things like that, as we're seeing. But that's what they're talking about. They're, they're talking about teaching people new skills and that'll be a necessary thing because you'll have this aimless lower middle class blue collar worker group out there wandering around with no actual uh, job or direction, right? <laughs> their, their skills are useless at this point. The things they've learned prior are not uh, to be taken forward into the new society, right? It, that'll mostly be handled by machines. That's what they're saying. Anyway, let's let's read on. Number three, breaking down traditional barriers to education and thus creating the basic point of departure for social advancement is a major goal of social reformers in the industrial society. Education, available for limited and specific periods of time, is initially concerned with overcoming illiteracy and subsequently with technical training based largely on written sequential reasoning. In the Technotronic Society, not only is education universal, but advanced training is available to almost all who have the basic talents, and there is far greater emphasis on quality selection. The essential problem is to discover the most effective techniques for the rational exploitation of social talent. I'm going to pause for a second. I'm going to read that sentence again. Pay very close attention to the wording. The essential problem is to discover the most effective techniques for the rational exploitation of social talent. So you see how the focus shifts to social types of energies and social things. Why do you think social media is such a big deal uh, to uh, the business world anymore, right? And uh, it's all about exploitation. So you understand the intention here. And the motivation behind a lot of this, uh, just in that sentence right there, uh, by talking about that. So, <laughs> you can see, and once again, it talks about uh, how uh, the, finding the most effective techniques. Well, this is the cybernetics methodologies at work, right? So you see that. So they're looking to use cybernetics methodologies for the exploitation of social talent. And that's exactly what they do. And it's all about social talent at this point in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or the Technotronic Era, as Mr. Brzezinski here so, uh, you know, keenly called it back in 1970, when this was written 52 years ago, 1970, foretelling things to come that are coming to fruition in front of our eyes right now. Uh, let's read on. 
The latest communication and calculating techniques are employed in this task. The educational process becomes a lengthier one and is increasingly reliant on audiovisual aids. In addition, the flow of new knowledge necessitates more and more frequent refresher studies. Gonna pause for a second. Visual and audio aids. Well, what is that? That's, that's online learning. That's the computer, folks. Training videos, training seminars, Zoom meetings, all of this stuff, right? All of these ongoing trainings, new knowledge he's talking about, necessitates more and more frequent refresher studies. It's, it's the same thing that goes on in all these countries everywhere around the world now. Uh, you usually have some type of annual online training. You have to, uh, in various fields, you have to take uh, uh, many of these courses and, and get so many hours of uh, coursework in per year uh, to maintain your, uh, your licensure of whatever field you're in or uh, whatever kind of cert certification you have, right? For many of these different jobs. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, so we, we see that that's unrolled here. This That's unraveled in recent years. Uh, we've seen that snap into place, haven't we? Uh, so that being the case, uh, he, he knew what he was talking about. He may not have been able to foresee exactly how the technology is developed in this way, but... Uh, I would say he was pretty spot on for the most part. Like I think he understood a good portion of how this would go because, well, this is the planning of it, right? This is this is the way they planned it. And now they have the technologies to implement these things, and they may not have envisioned them in the way that they've come to fruition here in in reality. But uh, nonetheless, they've used them uh, to these ends, right? So that's what we're talking about. But let's read on. Number four. In the industrial society, social leadership shifts from the traditional rural aristocratic to an urban plutocratic elite. Newly acquired wealth is its foundation, and intense competition the outlet as well as the stimulus for its energy. And I'm going to pause there. He's speaking of the industrial revolution and the rise to prominence of families like the Rockefellers the Carnegies, all of these people that, uh, all of these different uh, tax-free, non-profit uh, foundations are all named after, right? All of these philanthropic organizations. They call them philanthropic organizations, but what they do, in fact, is they set policies. They set policies. They're not helping anybody except themselves when it comes down to it. They set the tone. They set the policies. They steer the way things go through cybernetics principles. That's what they do. And you'll notice that these are the people that stepped into power uh, within the uh, auspices of the Industrial Revolution. And they intermarried with some of the old royal families to keep the peace, right? So that it was always these same controlling uh, parties in charge of everything. Uh, so that's that's more or less what has happened within the auspices of this industrial revolution. So all the money goes back to the same couple of central places that it always has been at. Uh, they've they've kind of hijacked this whole industrial revolution thing. So that's that's more or less what's being pointed out here. Is it's about the newly acquired wealth at at its foundation, right? This this created the new uh, elite class. So to say, and this elite class intermarried with the old elite class, and lo and behold, it's all the same elite class today, isn't it? Uh, so that's what it's pointing out here. Let's read on. 
In the technotronic society, plutocratic preeminence is challenged by the political leadership, which is itself increasingly permeated by individuals possessing special skills and intellectual talents. Knowledge becomes a tool of power and the effective mobilization of talent, an important way to acquire power. So I'm going to pause there. So he's talking about uh, this plutocratic uh, preeminence is challenged by the political leadership. Well, who's in the political leadership, folks? The ones that the plutocrats put in place, right? It's the same one. It's it's it's. Why do you think all of these uh, big business guys got involved with politics and gave money to different politicians, endorsed different politicians? Why do you think this, this stuff exists in the way that it does? That's what happened. They've got to keep that sphere of influence within their their back pocket. Right, so that they always have these people in these positions of power so that they could steer things the right way. So they recognized, I mean, clearly Brzezinski recognized it in this book, that this would become a threat to uh, the, the ones that uh, had gained power in the Industrial Revolution. So, of course, they're going to foresee that and they're going to take measures to prevent any type of interference from happening in their within their power circle so to say so uh, that that's what they've done so now they've been able to uh, recruit these people with the, what they call special skills and intellectual talents and they've put them in positions of governance and uh, used their knowledge as a tool to power and this this goes on to this day i mean this has always gone on to some degree or another it's just a matter of uh, how do they keep uh, their grasp on the rings of power, right? And that's what they've figured out here. Uh, so Brzezinski's pointing this out. So don't think that uh, those people who uh, rose to prominence during the Industrial Revolution uh, lost sight of the fact that the, the cradle of, of power might lose balance at some point and they would lose the hand of power. Of course they know that and they're going to do everything they can to prevent that from happening. So uh, that's that's largely one of the things that's been done here. But this is what he's pointing out. So let's read on. So he's speaking about the technotronic era there. So uh, it becomes uh, where governance or government structure, political leadership becomes one of the more important uh, um aspects of the technotronic era and and why do you think it is that everything's political anymore right all of this stuff medicine uh the medical field it's for your own good right they they push the vaccine because well that's for your own good and it's all political it's political it's politicized right all of it's politicized it's to suit an agenda and it's not the actual thing that they present it as all right. It's to fulfill an agenda that they have. It's all about this maintenance of power, like we were just talking about. But let's read on. Number five. The university in an industrial society. In contrast to the situation in medieval times, is an aloof ivory tower the repository of irrelevant, even if respected, wisdom, and for a brief time the fountainhead for budding members of the established social elite? In the technocratic society, the university becomes an intensely involved think tank, the source of much sustained political planning and social innovation. And I'm going to pause there. Why do you think they're all about capturing the minds of college students and university students? This is what it's about. These are the places that they, they plan 
policy decisions. They use these think tank groups. And it's all through the auspices of the university, the college. And where do they get their funding from? Well, usually they get state funding or federal funding. And sometimes funding from other governmental departments or agencies, right? So you put a professor in charge of a major department of one of these universities, and uh, they will uh, do what the funders want them to do, right? They'll do the research that they're being funded to do by places like, say, DARPA or by, you know, the, the, the U.S. federal government for whatever, whatever they're, they're trying to, uh, to accomplish. They'll put together some type of a think tank group, and they'll do research and, uh, you know, in order to keep the funding rolling in, they'll, they'll produce whatever results that their benefactors <laughs> want them to produce. Uh, so that's, that's largely what goes on. And a lot of it has to do with social engineering of the masses. See, because that's why university culture has become such a thing as it has. That's why you go away to college and you, you get indoctrinated with a lot of these progressive leftist type ideologies going there because that's heavily what's pushed and promoted. It's a cultural thing. And it all has to do with the Fourth Industrial Revolution, folks, the Technotronic Era, the 4IR, the, the, the precursor to transhumanism, folks. That's what all this is. It's social engineering on a grand scale. It's been going on for a long time, and Brzezinski pointed this out in 1970. 1970. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, so this is this is the plan, right? There it is. It's it's number five on this list that he gives. It's the plan. They use the universities to set policy, to set up think tank organizations and affect the culture to, you know, make social change. Let's read on. Number six, the turmoil inherent in the shift from a rigidly traditional rural society to an urban one engenders an inclination to seek total answers to social dilemmas, thus causing ideologies to thrive in the industrializing society. And he says here in parentheses, the American exception to this rule was due to the absence of a feudal tradition, a point well developed by Lewis Hartz. So he's talking about feudalism, right? He says because America lacked feudalism, uh, you know, it kind of, this was the exception to the rule with this. Was it really? <laughs> I don't think it was. But let's read on. In the industrial age, literacy makes for static, interrelated conceptual thinking, congenial to ideological systems. In the technocratic society, audiovisual communications prompt more changeable, disparate views of reality, not compressible into formal systems, even as the requirements of science and the new computative techniques place a premium on mathematical logic and systematic reasoning. The resulting tension is felt more acutely by scientists, with the consequence that some seek to confine reason to science while expressing their emotions through politics. Moreover, the increasing ability to reduce social conflicts to quantifiable and measurable dimensions reinforces the trend toward a more pragmatic approach to social problems while it simultaneously stimulates new concerns with preserving humane values. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So they're talking about quantifiable and measurable dimensions to reinforce different trends about behavior and emotion right, uh, in regard to the technocratic system. And he's talking about uh, audiovisual communications being the important thing here. 
And, uh, you know, this was 1970, folks. So uh, social media, anyone? <laughs> you, you could see uh, the precursor of these ideas being outlined here. And he's talking about uh, mathematical logic, systematic reasoning, all of these different things. But uh, it's more about the social influence of it all, the social factor. See, they're concerned with quantifying the social factors here. It's about control. That's what this is. It's behavior modification, behavior control. That's why they want to be able to quantify this stuff. And they're talking about, uh, you know, confining their reason to science while expressing their emotions through politics. Why do you think we have such grand political theater like we do? It's a distraction, folks. It's all to focus your attentions places where uh, it's not going to do you any good, right? <laughs> That's what it's about. It's a, it's a distraction to uh, focus your energy into a place or into a channel where nothing's going to come of it that's going to benefit you. Let's put it that way. Uh, so they've been working at this for a long time, and it, and it is. It's social engineering on the highest scale here uh, with a lot of this. And uh, Brzezinski was laying all this out right here in this book. Let's go uh, to the next point here. Number seven. In the industrial society, as the hitherto passive masses become active and there are intense political conflicts over such matters as or sorry, disenfranchisement and the right to vote, the issue of political participation is a crucial one. In the technotronic age, the question is increasingly one of ensuring real participation in decisions that seem too complex and too far removed from the average citizen. Political alienation becomes a problem. I'm going to pause for a moment. So what they're saying is you're too dumb to understand the, the scope of the, of the problem here. Uh, you know, these, these things, they're too far removed from the average person. You're just not smart enough to grasp what's going on. So we need to make the decision for you. That's essentially what's being said right there. Uh, let's read on, though. Similarly, the issue of political equality of the sexes gives way to a struggle for the sexual equality of women. In the industrial society, woman, the operator of machines, ceases to be physically inferior to the male, a consideration of some importance in rural life, and begins to demand her political rights. In the emerging technotronic society, automation threatens both males and females. Intellectual talent is computable. The pill encourages sexual equality, and women begin to claim complete equality. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Like I said, 1970, this was written, and I think the way he refers to it here is a little backward and archaic, but, uh, you know, with hindsight, with us looking back, but uh, things were much different back then. Things were not uh, like they are today, per se, as far as this goes, but he does point out the fact that uh, automation will be a threat to both males and females. He doesn't mention any of the other 612 other genders or whatever here, but that's, that's beside the point. Uh, but it talks about uh, the pill as being the big thing to encourage sexual equality and women to claim their complete equality, right? So uh, we, we see this is part of the social engineering campaign that's gone on as well. Uh, they put out these ideas, and all of this uh, ties back to depopulation-type ideas, too. Uh, the, the advent of the pill and various other forms of birth control and things like that. Although, 
they may have um, some social benefits for people. Uh, they, the intention that was originally put out behind them was for population reduction reasonings. So when you understand that and intention is everything and know that's what the intention was that's put behind this, then you could begin to understand a little bit something better about uh, people running this place, the things that they look for, the reasons that they do stuff. It's not about uh, empowering anyone, per se. No, not at all. They say the machines will do that before too long. Like, <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's not about empowering anybody. They couldn't care less about you, folks. That's the bottom line here. It's all about their agendas, right? Let's continue on. We're, we're almost finished. It's a couple more pages here, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, number eight, the newly enfranchised masses are organized in the industrial society by trade unions and political parties and unified by relatively simple and somewhat ideological programs. Moreover, political attitudes are influenced by appeals to nationalist sentiments communicated through the massive increase of newspapers employing, naturally, the reader's national language. In the Technotronic Society, the trend seems to be towards aggregating the individual support of millions of unorganized citizens who are easily within the reach of magnetic and attractive personalities and effectively exploiting the latest communication techniques to manipulate emotions and control reason. I'm going to repeat that. Exploiting the latest communication techniques to manipulate emotions and control reason. Reliance on television, and hence the tendency to replace language with imagery, which is international rather than national, and to include war coverage or scenes of hunger in places as distant as, for example, India, creates a somewhat more cosmopolitan, though highly impressionistic, involvement in global affairs. Gonna pause there, folks. So now you know why they show you pictures of Ukraine, right? This happened in a city in Ukraine. And, you know, it may or may not have happened in a city in Ukraine. It may, in fact, be a, a city from Syria or something from a couple years ago that they're showing you on the television. But that doesn't matter because they're telling you what they want you to believe, right? They're telling you what they, they want you to see this as and perceive it as. It's all about your perception. Uh, so this is one of the ways in which they utilize these technologies to manipulate your emotions and control your reason. Some of the latest techniques, right? The importance of television. Television is the greatest mind control tool ever invented. And Brzezinski understood that and was talking about it here. Let's read on. Number nine, economic power in the early phase of industrialization tends to be personalized by either great entrepreneurs like Henry Ford or bureaucratic industrial officials like Kaganovich or mine in Stalinist Poland. The tendency toward depersonalization economic power is stimulated in the next stage by the appearance of a highly complex interdependence between governmental institutions, including the military, scientific establishments, and industrial organizations. As economic power becomes inseparably linked with political power, it becomes more invisible and the sense of individual futility increases. Let me uh, break that down a little bit for you folks. <clears throat> let's pause there so they're saying here 
the next stage in this, uh, switching from the industrial society to uh, the, the fourth industrial revolution society, the 4IR, this technotronic era as he's speaking here, the, the stage we're in now, it involves the shifting of uh, the appearance of highly complex interdependence between governmental institutions, including the military, and of course the intelligence agencies and military intelligence and DARPA and all that stuff, scientific establishments and industrial organizations. Um, so he's talking about the military-industrial complex here in a nutshell, the way that it, it functions and it operates. You have these government agencies and uh, you know government organizations that uh, dole out money to private corporations to do certain facets of research and development. Uh, that would be your industrial organizations and scientific establishments. Uh, they also... Uh, will uh, funnel money out to universities, as was discussed earlier. Uh, so these are the things we're talking about. It's, it's, it's setting up a system wherein, uh, you know, uh, the, there's more centralized control on various levels with this stuff uh, within uh, the auspices of this. And this has been going on for many, many years now. Uh, but it's, it's really coming to a head now with the way things are. And he says the result thereof is this uh, economic power becomes inseparably linked with political power, and it becomes more invisible, right? So that's exactly what, what has happened. Uh, it, it's very hard to trace the funding to its root sources, but it's always invariably the taxpayer that put that foots the bill for everything. But uh, the the trail is an invisible trail, more or less, or it's a more invisible trail than what it used to be, uh, because all of these different facets of the power base go into effect here. Because you have the governmental agencies funneling uh, monies through various scientific research establishments, such as universities or private corporations, and uh, you know, private corporations being subcontracted through other uh, government and quasi-government organizations, it creates this massive uh, convoluted paper trail, or lack thereof of a paper trail, that where monies flow through, and this is your invisible power base, right? So you don't know who's actually making the decisions on a lot of these different things at some level, or who's actually the one uh, coming up with the idea. So, uh, that, that's the bottom line there. It, it convolutes the way things work. It confuses the way things work because uh, nine times out of ten what happens is you'll have some figurehead who takes the blame or credit uh, for some type of a policy that's set in place. And uh, nine times out of ten it's not that figurehead that came up with the idea, but they're the ones that are getting the credit or the blame for it. Uh, because that's how this operates. It's the plausible deniability factor. Once again, that's why they purposely obfuscate uh, the way things operate within these different systems. Uh, let's read on now. Number 10. In an industrial society, the acquisition of goods and the accumulation of personal wealth become forms of social attainment for an unprecedentedly large number of people. In the technotronic society, the adaptation of science to humane ends and a growing concern with the quality of life become both possible and increasingly a moral imperative for a large number of citizens, especially the young. I'm going to pause there, and I'm going to translate this uh, narcissistic gobbledygook for you. Essentially, this is saying that uh, in the industrial uh, era, uh, largely uh, people came to 
uh, acquire goods, right, and, and wealth and, uh, you know, all the, the material aspects of things that were pushed. It was a, a heavily uh, materialized type society, a materialistic type society. Uh, we were pushed this uh, bill of goods. You, you want to consume, consume, consume. Uh, that's what it was all about. The Industrial Revolution and the, the society uh, that was born out of that was a materialistic society. It's all about the material things. Acquire wealth, acquire goods, acquire this and that. Well, they're saying here that uh, in shifting into the new era, um, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. I'll paraphrase Klaus Schwab, okay? That's what they're looking for. All right, they're they're trying to dismantle this type of thing. So that's why they'll talk about it in ways of adaptation uh, of science to humane ends and a growing concern with the quality of life become both possible and increasingly a moral imperative for a large number of citizens, especially the young. See, they got to indoctrinate the youth, and that's why they do that through the school system so effectively, right? They want to make sure you feel bad about the fact that, you know, maybe you're a little better off than somebody else, right? Because, you know, that it's terrible to actually maybe, you know, work hard and, and be able to attain some type of uh, property for yourself or something, right? When there's disadvantaged people out there that don't have that opportunity. Hmm. So, so you see how this is a, a cue up for socialism and communism, communitarianism, as they like to call it as well. Uh, the redistribution of wealth, that's exactly what they're talking about here. It'll become a moral imperative for a large number of people. But, you know, they say for a large number of citizens, especially the young, you know who's not going to be real concerned with that? The elite, the ones at the top of the power structure that have all the wealth and stuff anyway. They don't care. They're, they're not giving away their, their wealth, are they? They're not going to give away their portion of this. They're not giving away their houses or, or anything like that, are they? No. They're going to maintain a stranglehold on that stuff, folks. They'll be the ones that'll own everything, and they'll be far happier than the rest of us who, who will own nothing. Right? So uh, that, that's the bottom line here. It's it's an, a whole separation. It's, it's a neo-feudalist system they're setting up in a sense here there's going to be this massive division between the ruling class and the ruled class uh so that's that's the bottom line here uh so essentially the things they're talking about uh, for the good of all humanity well that's not going to apply to them folks those people in the the power structure at the top right they, they're not going to have that they, they don't have the same concerns they think they're a different better class of people than we are right so th that's the bottom line with that. So I, I just wanted to translate a lot of that uh, gobbledygook there because uh, that's what a lot of this always is. They like to use all these big elaborate words and try to make it sound complicated when it's really a simple idea. It's a simple idea. They don't want you to have wealth and prosperity. They want it all for themselves, see, because they think there's only a finite number of resources here in this place and that the world's overpopulated and they need to do something about it. Uh, that's their perspective, but they don't want to give up what they have because, well, they like living a life of luxury and comfort and being able to do as they please, and they think they're above the law and they're better than you and I, uh, but they have a different standard for the rest of us, and that's what they're pushing and promoting here. Let's read on here. 
Eventually, these changes and many others, including some that more directly affect the personality and quality of the human being himself, will make the technotronic society as different from the industrial as the industrial was from the agrarian. Gonna pause there. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Changes that uh, include some that more directly affect the personality and the quality of the human being himself will make this a, a very different society? The quality of the human being himself and the personality. They're fundamentally trying to change people, folks. What they are, who they are, how they behave. Uh, you know, fundamental things about what it is to be human. That's what's being planned here. All right? And understand, this is coming from uh, somebody who is very highly involved with the policy planning uh, aspect of this within this society so this isn't coming from you know just some futurist or something like this this is one of the guys that laid out the plans and said this is how we're gonna do it these are the possible outcomes of how the future is gonna look and we need to make decisions on which way we want to steer things and how okay so that's who this guy was uh so this is not like you know just some dude out there uh, who writes a book uh, about, you know, future probabilities of things happening. This is somebody involved in the planning of it, right? So he's telling you what's going to happen, more or less, if you, if you read this and know how to read between the lines with things. Let's read on. And just as the shift from an agrarian economy and feudal politics toward an industrial society and political systems based on the individual's emotional identification with the nation-state gave rise to contemporary international politics, so the appearance of the technotronic society reflects the onset of a new relationship between man and his expanded global reality. It's the New World Order, folks. The New World Order. How many times have we heard them say that? And actually, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he says that in this book. He's He talks directly to a New World Order in some of his other books, one being called uh, Strategic Visions, if I'm not mistaken, which he wrote in 2012. Uh, if you could find any books by this guy, go ahead, pick them up. If you want to know what future uh, potentials look like in this world, the way things are potentially going to go. Uh, look and see some of the things he had in mind. But uh, let's read on just a little bit further before we wrap it up here. Because this next section talks about what he calls social explosion or implosion. This new relationship is a tense one. Man has still to define it conceptually and thereby render it comprehensible to himself. Our expanded global reality is simultaneously fragmenting and thrusting itself in upon us. The result of the coincident explosion and implosion is not only insecurity and tension, but also an entirely novel perception of what many still call international affairs. Life seems to lack cohesion as environmentally rapidly alters and human beings become increasingly manipulable and malleable. Everything seems more transitory and temporary. External reality more fluid than solid. The human being more synthetic than authentic. And I'm going to pause there, folks. 
Do you hear the language he's using in the carefully chosen words? Human beings more synthetic than authentic. Reality, external reality being more fluid than solid. See, human beings becoming more increasingly manipulable and malleable. Pay attention very closely. And let's read on. Even our senses perceive an entirely novel reality, one of our own making, but nevertheless, in terms of our sensations, quite real. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to read that sentence again and make sure you pay close attention to certain words which I'll emphasize. Because you may recognize a pattern there that we've seen happen within the past two years here, if you pay attention closely. Even our senses perceive an entirely novel reality, one of our own making, but nevertheless, in terms of our sensations, quite real. Let's read on. More important, there is already widespread concern about the possibility of biological and chemical tampering with what has until now been considered the immutable essence of man. Human conduct, some argue, can be predetermined and subjected to deliberate control. Man is increasingly acquiring the capacity to determine the sex of his children, to affect through drugs the extent of their intelligence, and to modify and control their personalities. Speaking of a future at most only decades away, an experimenter in intelligence control asserted, quote, I foresee the time when we shall have the means and therefore inevitably the temptation to manipulate the behavior and intellectual functioning of all the people through environmental and biochemical manipulation of the brain, end quote. I don't think I have to, uh, you know... <laughs> uh, expand on that idea anymore for you folks i think i think you get the point right i don't think i need to break that one down do i (laughs) so this is what has been said here this is uh what this guy is you know proposing here as far as policy decisions go so if you know how to read the between the lines you understand that uh This is a blueprint of sorts. And he's not uh, necessarily like uh, in in this book here. You don't hear him denouncing this idea, do you? Right? That's the whole point here. He doesn't openly denounce this idea and say we must not allow this to happen. Right? He hasn't said that. (laughs) He's acknowledging that this is something that could happen. And kind of tongue-in-cheek indicating that uh, this is probably the best course of action for the people in positions of power to maintain control. But he hasn't openly denounced it, has he? Let's read on and see what else uh, he has to say here, and then we'll wrap it up. Thus... It is an open question whether technology and science will in fact increase the options open to the individual. Under the headline, Study Terms, Technology, A Boon to Individualism, the New York Times reported the preliminary conclusions of a Harvard project on the social significance of science. Its participants were quoted as concluding that, quote, most Americans have a greater range of personal choice, wider experience, and a more highly developed sense of self-worth than ever before, end quote. 
This may be so, but a judgment of this sort rests essentially on an intuitive and comparative insight into the present and past states of mind of Americans. In this connection, a word of warning from an acute observer is highly relevant. And here's the, that word from this uh, acute observer. Quote, it, beha be it behaves us to examine carefully the degree of validity as measured by actual behavior of the statement that a benefit of technology will be to increase the number of options and alternatives the individual can choose from. In principle, it could, in fact, the individual may use any number of psychological devices to avoid the discomfort of information overload and thereby keep the range of alternatives to which he responds much narrower than that which technology in principle may available to him end quote I'm gonna pause for a second there so what's this talking about this is talking about the way that they've kind of uh, used computer algorithms uh, within social media and different things like that to uh, put us in our own little private echo chambers hasn't it uh, they, they don't want you to find new information or present new information to people who might not otherwise be prepared to deal with it right so that's essentially what that's talking about uh, that would be the psychological device that would avoid the discomfort of information overload, or, or so they're claiming here. Uh, but what it really is, is it's a form of censorship, right? And to try to keep your mind limited. Limited, it's putting a limitation on your thought processes or the things that you accept as true. Uh, so that's what that is, and that can, in and of itself, measure behavior and alter behavior, in a sense, can it? Anyway... Let's read on. And here's what uh, Brzezinski has to say. In other words, the real questions are how the individual will exploit the options, to what extent he will be intellectually and psychologically prepared to exploit them, and in what way society as a whole will create a favorable setting for taking advantage of these options. Their availability is not of itself proof of a greater sense of freedom or self-worth. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. And when we're talking about uh, these uh, technologies being a boon to individualism, this is talking about uh, the very things we've seen come to fruition over the past several years here. About things like uh, it could offer you uh, different alternatives as an individual, right? Different psychological alternatives. This is our anything-goes society where they're normalizing and uh, glorifying things like uh, this whole push for transgender stuff and for uh, the push for the uh, acceptance as normal for mental illness and and various things in this regard uh, this is another aspect of it you see this is the social aspect of it and they're saying technologies can be an aid in this this type of a, a situation uh, so once again it's it's normalizing the idea of uh, the acceptance as a normal phase of or, or state of being of uh, mental illness of sorts, right? And that technology can aid in uh, the function of these people and help them to realize their potential and, and who of who they are and come to acceptance of who they are and what they are. It's it's leaning into transhumanism, folks. That's what this is for. It's a, um, a precursory idea for transhumanist thought. Okay, it's about uh, trying to entice people into this system, ingratiating them into this system by using their weaknesses against them. That's why it's exploitive in nature, as Brzezinski says here. 
they're exploiting people's weaknesses of sorts, right? Their uh, confusion about their identity. They're exploiting this. Or their, their, you know, their, their thoughts as to what they would really like to try to be that they may not necessarily be. They're exploiting this, and they're going to use this to hook people into the system and control them. It's a control mechanism. Make no doubt about that. All right? So it, it's talking about that kind of a thing when you get down to the brass tacks of it and read between the lines here. So uh, that's why they're talking about uh, the availability of these technologies, it says, is not in and of itself proof of a greater sense of freedom or self-worth. That's the promise they're, they're handing people with this. Okay, so if you uh, identify as somebody who uh, would say is some type of transgender ideology or, or some type of, uh, you know, uh, whatever these gender identifications and stuff are, or uh, even if you, say, are on the autism spectrum or, uh, you, you know, uh, or schizophrenic or all of these different types of uh, labels that people have been given... Well, they're offering you these technologies as a solution to your problem. See, because it's not that, uh, you know, you have a problem per se. It's, it's that you're just misunderstood. And these technologies will help you to fit in and express yourself in the way that you need to express yourself. Right? So uh, that's the exploitive nature of this. They're, they're trying to sell people on the idea that the technology will be the solution to their problem. It's the same thing with transhumanism. At some point, they're going to come out and claim that this is the solution to every human problem that there is. All of our health problems. It'll cure all diseases. It'll be the the, uh, the thing that eliminates all disease, even aging and death. Right? They'll claim this is the, the cure-all for every negative thing in human existence. And that, that's why they're, they're pushing the technologies and stuff the way they are. It all steers into this transhumanist agenda. It all does. And right here, even in, in this, I mean, if you learn to read between the lines and understand what's being said here in no uncertain terms, that's what it is. It's the promise of technology as a, uh, a, a way to free mankind from his human limitations, right? That's what they claim. So uh, if you have any kind of uh, problems with uh, your sense of freedom or self-worth... Well, they, they have this technological solution for you, don't they? Or if you have some kind of confusion as to what your identity truly is. Or if you have difficulty communicating with other people. Well, they're offering you this technology as the solution. See? It's a lead-up to the transhumanist notion. That's exactly what it is. It's a social engineering ploy that's being used here. So let's read on, and then I think we'll uh, just close it up after this last, this next paragraph here. So uh, let's read on. Instead of accepting himself as a spontaneous given, man in the most advanced societies may become more concerned with conscious self-analysis according to external explicit criteria. What is my IQ? What are my aptitudes, personality traits, capabilities, attractions, and negative features. The internal man, spontaneously accepting his own spontaneity, will more and more be challenged by the external man, consciously seeking his self-conscious image, and the transition from one to the other may not be easy. 
It will also give rise to difficult problems in determining the legitimate scope of social control, the possibility of extensive chemical mind control, the danger of loss of individuality inherent in extensive transplantation, the feasibility of manipulating the genetic structure will call for the social definition of common criteria of use and restraint. As the previously cited writer put it, quote, while the chemical affects the individual, the person is significant to himself and to society in his social context, at work, at home, at play. The consequences are social consequences. In deciding how to deal with such alterers of the ego and of experience, and consequently alterers of the personality after the experience, and in deciding how to deal with the changed human beings, we will have to face new questions such as who am I, when am I, who, who are they in relation to me, end quote. Uh, I'm going to pause there so you could see how... Uh, this is the glorification and normalization of mental illness, folks. Uh, that's what it's talking about. It's about chemically altering people's brains to make them question <laughs> all of these things, right? And the social context thereof. Uh, so are they talking about uh, using these different ideas to benefit mankind? It doesn't sound like it here, does it? It sounds like it's making man into something more confusing or complex so to say here uh we we see and it's talking about the the idea of the external man and the internal man and how we'll be kind of pressured socially to uh quantify ourselves in a sense through what is my personality type uh, what's my iq all of these different ideas as he was discussing there it's the quantification factor here. Once again, it's a cybernetics principle being invoked, and it's being invoked for control because that's what cybernetics principles are used for, controlling whole systems, controlling the whole person, the whole personality, controlling the behavior, right? So that's what it's about. So they're talking about using chemical and biological genetic manipulations, everything of the sort, to uh, ascertain different methods of control for people causing creating confusion in people let's read on we're almost finished moreover man will increasingly be living in man-made and rapidly man-altered environments by the end of this century approximately two-thirds of the people in the advanced countries will live in cities and that was the 20th century folks Urban growth has so far been primarily the byproduct of accidental economic convenience, of the magnetic attraction of population centers, and of the flight of many from rural poverty and exploitation. It has not been deliberately designed to improve the quality of life. The impact of accidental cities is already contributing to the depersonalization of individual life as the kinship structure contracts and in enduring relations of friendship become more difficult to maintain. Julian Huxley was perhaps guilty of only slight exaggeration when he warned that, quote, overcrowding in animals leads to distorted neurotic and downright pathological behavior. We can be sure that the same is true in principle of people. City life today is definitely leading to mass mental disease, to growing vandalism and possible eruptions of mass violence, end quote. And I'm going to pause right there for a moment, and we're almost finished, but uh, 
Julian Huxley said that, and uh, Brzezinski just quoted him on that here. Think about that. So forcing people into megacities or uh, smart cities uh, is going to cause mass mental disease. That's what Julian Huxley said. These people have understood these principles for a long time. They know this is not the natural way that man exists in nature. This is contrary to natural law and the, the natural way man operates. We shouldn't be crammed into these gigantic cities We're, with massive populations. It creates dehumanization. It creates desensitization for other people, right? That's what they're saying. Depersonalization of individual life. Uh, it makes relationships harder when you're all crammed together in a, a small space. Lots and lots of people crammed together. It, it makes you feel more like a cog in the wheel, right? Uh, so this is not the, the normal state uh, for mankind to exist in. They recognize this. This is the plan, however, though. So they understand that this will cause... Um, mass mental illness the this move to pushing people into cities and more technological types of uh, uh, the usages of of different areas in people's lives the the more use of these technologies will lead to massive mental illness they know that they're aware of it they've engineered it that way and there's a reason for that because they want to break your mind to make you more malleable for control right so they understand forcing people into these situations, into using these technologies, and it's getting to the point where you don't have much of a choice if you want to participate in society. You're going to use these technologies, the computers, the internet, all of these things. You could barely do anything anymore without a computer, right? It, it's a sad state of affairs. If you don't have a computer or a smartphone, you miss out on a lot of different things in this society. They've made it to the point where it's almost a... a, a uh, a must-have that you must have this in order to function and that's that's the point of it going that way that's exactly what they want uh, so anyway let's let's read on here the problem of identity is likely to be complicated by a generation gap intensified by the dissolution of traditional ties and values derived from extended family and enduring community relationships the dialogue between the generations is becoming a dialogue of the deaf. It no longer operates within the conservative, liberal, or nationalist, internationalist framework. The breakdown in communication between the generations, so vividly evident during the student revolts of 1968, was rooted in the irrelevance of the old symbols to many younger people. Debate implies the acceptance of a common frame of reference in language, since these were lacking... Debate became increasingly impossible. I'm going to pause there, folks. So he's talking about the counterculture movement of the 1960s. He understood very well what this was for and uh, what this was. This was contrived. This was socially engineered. This was the effect they were looking for. They wanted this break of communication between the generations so that they could more easily indoctrinate the younger generations and make them capitulate to this new technocratic system that's coming or technotronic as uh, Brzezinski calls it it's technocrats folks it's a technocracy it's the rise of technocracy that's what this is about let's read on and this is the last paragraph and then we'll close it out here for the night 
Though currently the clash is over values, with many of the young rejecting those of their elders, who in turn contend that the young have evaded the responsibility of articulating theirs, in the future the clash between generations will be also over expertise. Within a few years, the rebels in the more advanced countries who today have the most visibility will be joined by a new generation, making its claim to power in government and business, a generation trained to reason logically as accustomed to exploiting electronic aids to human reasoning as we have been to using machines to increase our own mobility, expressing itself in a language that functionally relates to these aids, accepting as routine managerial processes current innovations such as planning, programming, budgeting systems, and the appearance in high business echelons of top computer executives. As the older elite defends what it considers not only its own vested interests, but more basically its own way of life, the resulting clash could generate even more intense conceptual issues. And that's the end of the section there that we're going to read. So essentially, uh, he's pointing out that, uh, you know, one of the strategies moving forward to would be to uh, try to indoctrinate uh, the younger generation and uh, uh, put together some type of a, a ruling class component of said younger generation to train them to uh, take positions of power, this younger generation. These ones that will learn to exploit the electronic aids to manipulate human behavior, uh, who will learn... Uh, you know, all of these different processes and these different uh, types of methodologies, these conceptions. And he talks about, uh, you know, the uh, elite here, once again, the older elite defending what it considers its vested interests, but more basically its own way of life. So what have they done here? Well, they've, uh, you know, come up with these initiatives where they will train young world leaders and set them out and put them in positions where they, they could wind up in influential places within different uh, international governments and things of that nature. Uh, so World Economic Forum has put together such a program, and uh, many of the people who've been through that program are now in positions in government uh, such as Macron in France, um, various other ones in different places in, in government power positions or in corporate power positions, uh, so like Elon Musk. Uh, that, that's another one that's been through some of these World Economic Program, World Economic Forum programs uh, for young leaders, right? So they indoctrinate them, they train them, they show them the way to go. And it's all to, uh, once again, further the, this whole power grab here. It's to defend their position here as the quote-unquote elites of this world. It, it's always been about that. Uh, so this technocracy that's coming, we could see facets of it being described here in this book from 1970, written by Zbigniew Brzezinski. So he knew the writing was on the wall. He knew what the plan was because he helped to develop the plan, and uh, it's it's right here in black and white. So we can understand a little something about what is coming in the near future for us because we see what we're living through now that he had already written about, don't we? And you see how it all relates once again to the whole transhumanist notion of things. Always does, folks. 
Always does. Uh, so, you know, that's the bottom line here. So 52 years ago, this guy wrote a book outlining the very things going on today and things yet to come and had laid down the blueprint for how the elite could defend their positions of power in this world. And they have followed this blueprint and are continuing to follow this blueprint. And we see the machinations of that going on in society today. And that's the bottom line here. So uh, with that being said... Uh, What's the big idea? Well, uh, Z-Big was Z-Big New Brzezinski's nickname. They called him Z-Big. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was the big idea. Technocracy. Transhumanism. That's what the idea is, folks. So to answer the question we started with, Z-Big idea, it's all the transhumanist philosophy, once again. All written about way back in 1970. And uh, I would recommend pick up whatever other books you could find by this guy because, you know, it really relates more or less to how the international community uh, will react and adapt and, and kind of uh, pivot themselves in response to various things happening. They wargamed a lot of this stuff out way in advance. They, they understood uh, what the weaknesses and, and stuff like that were within different facets of society and world politics. And they... They kind of uh, put together outlines of different ways that things could go with this. And we see many of the things that uh, Brzezinski wrote about coming to fruition in front of our faces here. And he understood the role of technology in all of this. He, we, they, they may not have had the technologies back then when he wrote this book, but he knew what was on the future horizon with these technologies, the capabilities that they would have, and some of the potential that was there. He didn't exactly know how it would exactly manifest itself in the physical world here in the future, but uh, he had foreseen how a lot of these things could be used as tools to manipulate people's behaviors on a fundamental level, and even their genetics, so to say, because he even talked about that, didn't he? Uh, so that being the case, we, we could see that uh, this is another book that was way ahead of its time, uh, written about uh, many of these things that we see coming to pass in front of our faces. So, you know, that being the case, uh, look for whatever this guy has written. Look for some more of his writings if you want to understand things to come. A lot of it's very dry reading, I'll be real honest. If you're not interested in, like, uh, you know, international politics and stuff like that, it's a very boring read for the most part, a lot of this stuff. But uh, some of the ideas inherent there are, are very telling, and uh, you could learn a lot just from looking through some of this stuff. So uh, with that being the case, I just wanted to point out how this all ties into the whole transhumanist notion of things because that's what I do, right? Uh, so, you know, that being the case, once again, we find another thing that ties directly to this. And, uh, you know, the, the blueprint has been there for many, many decades now. We, we've seen uh, their playbook coming to fruition in front of our eyes. And we, we see the steps along the way. And, and a, a work like this outlines some of those steps in very clear, concise terms here. Uh, so it's it's important to look at this stuff and really break it down. But anyway, uh, that's all I've got for tonight with this. Uh, I hope uh, that it was educational for people. And, uh, you know, you could understand that many of these things we see happening in society, they're not just, they don't just come around and come about by happenstance, right? It's not random chance. A lot of this stuff has been pre-planned for a very, very long time. 
and uh, they're just steering it into fruition right now. Uh, so that being the case, we're going to close it out there. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good night, folks. Take care. Come with me.